0: Thank you. Watch, my fingers never leave my hands. Well, once again, good morning, everybody. It is so awesome to uh, have you guys here, um, especially knowing that you all knew that I was going to be preaching today. It's really exciting to me. Um, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 5 today. We're going to make it through the whole chapter, and uh, the more man, the more I learn about Nehemiah, the more I just love this guy. How many of you guys have really enjoyed this series on Nehemiah so far? Okay. For the record, okay, for those people who listen on iTunes, a lot of people just raise their hands, okay? A lot of, I should have said, by round of applause. But Nehemiah 5, we've been looking a lot at building the wall. Nehemiah's people, as they build this wall around the temple, we're going to take a break from the wall. We're going to step back from the wall today. But we're going to take a look at another building project instead. And what I mean by that is I believe that Nehemiah's wall is, is, is still under construction even today. The physical wall was built in, in uh, you know, 455 B.C. or so, and, and that's fine. But I think the wall is still under construction. And what I mean by that, by that is I see today's wall as other believers, as the family of God, the, the, the people of God. The people that are sitting to your right and to your left, the people that are filling this room and other rooms just like it around the country and around the world today, you are both the temple, 1 Corinthians tells us, and the wall. You're the the temple and the wall. And so as the temple, we are the house for God's Spirit bodily. God's Spirit dwells in you bodily, the Bible tells us. And as the wall, the wall isn't necessarily you, it's the believers around you that make sense? So we're both temple and wall. And every time we come together like this for church, for, for whatever, and, and we build one another up as the body of Christ and as believers, we are that wall around God's temple. But like any other wall, like any other project, a wall building needs leadership. You've got to have a foreman. You've got to have a supervisor. You've got to have a building uh, inspector. And God sends those leaders today, just like he sent Nehemiah. Back in 455 B.C., just like Nehemiah came to lead the people in Jerusalem, we have leaders that God has sent to lead us as well. To help us be strong and overcome the obstacles that we encounter in just daily life, on, on our spiritual path, on our journey. Uh, we have leaders who help us. And uh, we, we, we hope and pray that we have good, godly leaders that are are on our side and for us. But how do we define a good leader? That's what I really wanted to look at today. What What is the definition of a good leader? Because we're all leaders, okay? It doesn't, I don't mean just corporately. I don't mean a corporate leader like a manager or a supervisor or something. I don't, I mean, you guys are all leaders in one way or another. And hopefully we're leading people to Christ. By the way we behave, the way we act, the way we carry ourselves, the way we deal with problems that face us. You are all leaders. So, how can we be good leaders? What, what defines a good leader? And the best way I've heard it put, I got this from another pastor, his name's Chip Ingram, and he said, A good leader is one who leads in such a way that not to follow would seem foolish. You can put that on your Facebook wall. A good leader is one who leads in such a way that not to follow would seem foolish. And I think that uh, just like there are building blocks for our wall, there are building blocks to lead us to good leadership. And, and I want to look at some of them today because I think Nehemiah was one of those guys in history that, that had all of the right pieces. I think Nehemiah, uh, him, I mean, I realize he was just a man and he had his shortcomings, but I think he had all of the right pieces to make him a great leader, and that's why people followed him. So let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to break it up and kind of go, go uh, we're going to stop and, and be going a lot. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to get through the whole chapter today, and we'll start in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as their flesh, our children are their children, yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Stop there. So we see from the text that there was a famine in the land. Okay, uh, And what was happening was this famine was was causing a division between the upper, uh, the nobles and the officials, and the lower working classes. They're, they're starting to get this division. What's happening is the, the, the working classes are are mortgaging their homes and they're mortgaging their vineyards and their orchards and their fields as a means to get money so that they can buy food to feed their families. And so the wealthy then are charging high interest on this, on the deals. They're charging these exorbitant fees and, and things for interest rates. And they're, uh, uh, having these, these, uh, huge collateral demands and and what happens is the people then aren't able to make their payments and they've already put up this collateral and so they can't make the payment and then the uh, the wealthy then work cashing in on the collateral then and so thereby removing even a means to make money for the lower classes. And so you see what's going on? I mean does this, does this sound familiar at all? How many of you guys remember predatory lending? It's still going on today. It's not much different from what is happening. Right here today, in, in our time, in our country even, someone owns a, a small business they use to provide for their family, tough times come along, they take out another mortgage on the house, it's a high interest loan, they can't, make the mo- they can't make the payments, they sell stuff from the business in order to get the money to pay for the house, it just spirals, it just goes and goes and goes until finally there's just nothing left. Right? Same play, different players, isn't it? So it's not hard for us then to imagine the frustration the the feeling of of hopelessness and of feeling of helplessness and the feeling of being taken advantage of that the that the, the working classes were feeling and it's not hard for us to imagine why then in verse 6 Nehemiah says he was angry he says he was very angry i i would even say that he probably was furious and and actually let me a little side road here there's actually been some debate as to whether or not Nehemiah's anger was justified, was it biblical? Did he have the right to be angry? Sounds like a song, doesn't it? We've got the right to be angry. Dating myself, it's Pat Benatar. Anyway, anyway, is it right for us as Christians to be angry? Do we have the right to, to be angry? It writes us anger. Mardana's, you doing right? We got preach it, sister. You're right, though. I believe Nehemiah was right. And here's the difference. Here's the difference, because I myself have been guilty of unrighteous anger. I know. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. I have been guilty of it. And I think the difference is Nehemiah was not angry necessarily at a person or even a group of people. He was angry at a situation. He was angry at what was going on. God's people, the Jews' nation, was taking advantage of other Jews, okay? Just like when Jesus went in uh, t- to the uh, temple and chased out the money changers. I don't believe Jesus was angry at the money changers. He was angry at what they were doing. They were taking advantage. They were exploiting God's people, you see? So the difference is, are you mad at the person? Are you, mad? Are you leveling that anger at another individual or group of people? Or are you leveling your anger at the situation and trying to do something about the situation. That's, I think, the difference. And, and I've gone the wrong way on it. I'll admit that, certainly. So yes, in a word, I said all that to say, yes, I believe Nehemiah was justified in his, uh, in his anger. And in that anger, how many of us would have felt perfectly justified in storming into the nobles' and the officials' clubhouse or whatever it is they're hanging out and and saying and demanding an answer storming in slamming the door behind us and saying you guys what is going on what are you doing i demand an answer been there done that anybody no not you guys i know But look at what he does. It would have been really easy for him to to storm in there and give him a piece of his mind. But look at verse 7. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Now, right here I think Nehemiah just gave us one of the first building blocks of good leadership. And that is keep calm. Relax. Chill out. Don't let your anger run away with you. Don't go off half-cocked. Don't have some knee-jerk reaction to a problem and your, your solution winds up being worse than the problem was in the first place. Look at what Nehemiah does. He, he stops. He takes counsel with himself. He waits. He assesses the situation. He shuts up. He holds his tongue. And he composes himself, centers, and then goes, and then goes in and, and, makes, and takes action at that point. See, I've really liked learning more and more about Nehemiah in this series because I, I like Nehemiah. I identify with this guy. History tells us that Nehemiah was a take charge, no nonsense, not screwing around, down to earth, practical guy. He saw a problem, saw an issue, dealt with the problem, was not concerned about ancillary issues. He wasn't trying to figure out every possible outcome and plan for every possible situation that might arise from the solution. He was dealing with the problem. He didn't waste time and mess around wondering what issues might come up through his solution. He just worries about the ones that do come up, not the ones that might happen. He deals with things in the here and now. And so, I like that about it. History remembers him as a, as a man who acted swiftly and decisively and confidently. And I like that. So verse 7 says, I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles, the officials. I said, you're exacting interest. And I held a great assembly against them. Verse 8, And said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us and they were silent could not find a word to say so what was going on was the 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 leaders of the of Jerusalem the upper class the nobles the officials were charging these high interest rates forcing people to basically not be able to make their payments then collecting on the on the collateral taking away the the farms the vineyards the houses forcing people to be sold into slavery knowing knowing that the whole time Nehemiah and his people are trying to buy these people back from slavery. You see what was going on here? In the, in the, I think in the nobles' minds, it was like a victimless tribe. Yeah, they go into slavery for a little bit, but Nehemiah's going to buy them back. They'll be right back. They're back on the street. You know? So it was no big deal. They were using, like, loopholes and semantics to justify their actions. But we know that they knew better. And the reason we know that is because nobody refutes... The charges. Nehemiah levels these charges against me. says, you're exacting interest and in this is going on. And the end of verse 8 tells us they were silent, could not find a word to say. You better believe that if I had been an innocent man in that room. And Nehemiah said, hey, what's going on? I'd have been like, uh, mm, not me. I have not been doing that, sir. So you guys talk. And I'm going to be outside. Does anybody need anything? That would have been. But nobody does that. Everybody just stands there. Yeah. You're right. We're busted. Okay. So the two verses, seven and eight, I think hold two of the keys to effective leadership. The first one, stay calm. Second one, look at, he takes counsel with himself and then simple, communicate, communicate, communicate. Just talk to somebody, talk to people about it, okay? This is the first step in conflict resolution, communication. As far as I'm concerned, this is about the only step most of the time in conflict resolution. And yet, it's the one we mess up most of the time. It's the one we skip over or ignore a lot of the time. That's been my experience. Get everyone together, lay everything out on the table, bring everything, bring the problem into the light where we can see it, we can talk about it, we can have a conversation about it. How many times does Satan begin to drive a wedge in between people, in between churches, congregants, leadership, in between managers and employees, in between husbands and wives, in between parents and children, in between students and other students... Simply because we did not take the time or make the effort to get everybody together in a room and lay the problem on the table and calmly talk about a situation. How many times, how many divisions and splits and arguments and fights and divorces could have been avoided simply because we we neglected to communicate? We failed. But instead, what do I do? I stew about it for a while. I think about it, and I think how, man, you have wronged me. You have done something that has offended me, and I'm upset about it, and I want my pound of flesh. I want retribution. I want justice. So I stew about it for a while, and pretty soon I have a little conversation with somebody in the break room about it, and they agree with me. Now there's two of us right? And then we go out back into our cubicle and we talk to a few more people and we're building our little army. We're building our little camp against this guy over here because he did something to me that just isn't right. And I shouldn't have to deal with this. So I build my little camp and I build and I build. And pretty soon we launch this all out nuclear strike against poor Joe over here who probably didn't even know there was a problem. That ever happened to any of you guys? How about this? Have you been on the other end of it? Have you been the poor guy that was like, "Ah, I didn't even know. And suddenly you got 20 people storming into your office. Swords drawn. Loaded for bear. And what makes it worse, kids, is when it's happening inside the church. Because it does happen. It does happen. See, the name on the sign out by the road says Prairie View Christian Church. And guys, that implies that there are Christians in this building. But when we act like I just described, when especially against other Christians, but in general, at all, when we act like that, what does it say about us? What does it say about the kind of church we are? What does it say about the kind of person I am? And what does it say about this Jesus that I tell everybody about? It's... It doesn't say much. Well, it says a lot, but not much of it's good. And that is exactly what Nehemiah is saying to the nobles in verse 9. Verse 9 says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Isn't that, now I'm not saying today that everybody outside the church is your enemy. Far from that. Quite the opposite. But he's calling them out and he's saying, Guys, Look at yourselves. Look at what you're doing. What will the neighbors think? Look how you're acting. You're proving right everything that that Sambalada and Tobiah has said about us. You're, You're proving that we are feeble and we are foolish. And right now, if a fox walked across this wall, it would crumble. You're proving them right. See, the whole city, the whole city, nobles, officials, the working classes, the whole city had joined together and they had risen above the taunts and the threats. They knew about the threats and the taunts and the the making fun that had come from Sanballat and Tobiah and the Sumerians and the Ashdodites and the Arabs and the Ammonites. They all knew about that stuff and they all knew that they had risen above together. The, The Jewish nation was rising and building together and now you've got the nobles and the officials acting like this, selling their brothers and sisters, into slavery for a profit. The leaders of society acting in a way that disgraced not just themselves, but the whole Jewish nation and the God that it served. Verse 10 says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money and grain... Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. That's awesome, right? That's a good day. Nehemiah says to the nobles, look, I and my people, we've loaned money to these guys too. We've given to them as well. But we can't lay these burdens on them. We cannot lay this interest and this collateral on these people. We can't charge them these fees because times are hard right now. And we're all in this together. We've got to recognize that we're not here to make a profit. We're here to, we're here to build a city. We're here to build a nation back and put it back together. We can't be doing these things. We've got to give back to these people everything that they've given up because they've given up Everything. And Nehemiah's re- rebuke must have struck a chord because the nobles immediately turn and pledge to give back not just the interest, but the principle. All of it. The land, the money, the oil, the wine, the chickens and goats, all of it. Everything. Now right here, watch what happens because Nehemiah pulls out another one of those building blocks. And I think it's wisdom. One of those building blocks of leadership is Wisdom. There's a Russian proverb that made its way into the English language by way of uh, President Ronald Reagan back in the 80s. And the proverb says, Doveriae, no proveriae. Yeah. No? In English, anybody have a guess what it means? Reagan, Reaganomics. What? Trust Trust but verify. That's exactly what it means. Remember that? So now when somebody asks you, you can say, Dovergai no provergai. Where are moose and squirrel? <laughs> so, so they say, okay, Nehemiah, we're in. We're with you. We'll give everything back. Nehemiah, look what he does. He immediately turns and he calls in the priests. Oh, you'll give everything back? Awesome. Uh, priests, would you come in here for a second? And he, and he makes them swear an oath. To do as they promised. Look at verse 12. They said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests. It's in the same verse. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment. It wasn't like a little shake. I don't see it like a little shake like this. There was a fold in the robe and he snapped that garment. Okay? So it's a hard shake. I shook out the fold of my robe. And I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. What were they going to do, right? The whole great assembly had witnessed it. The priests were there. Nehemiah was there. They couldn't get out of it. So all the, they all said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. You guys, we all, have, we all have friends that we know, and these are great people to know. People you know whose word is their bond. You've heard that saying? His word is his bond. People who, when they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. You, it's as good as done. Come hell or high water, these people are going to do what they told you they're going to do. They're going to keep their promise. Well, Nehemiah apparently was not getting that feeling from the nobles nehemiah knew something about the character of the people that he was dealing with here i think and so he makes them swear this oath and says to them if anyone breaks his promise here's the penalty here's the penalty guys if you don't do what you promised may god take from you your house your job and everything you own now think about that what had they taken from the working class their houses, their jobs, and everything they owned. Look how God works. So he takes out this insurance policy, and he makes everyone swear the oath. And I think that we begin to see more about the nobles in chapter 6, so make sure you come back next week. As we get into chapter 6, we kind of see the nobles' shenanigans and goings-on. But I think that Nehemiah mentions it here intentionally, so that when we get to 6... We're not too shocked by the character that we're seeing exhibited uh, by some of these people. But that's, that's next week. We're looking at leadership this week. And all throughout history, on every continent in the world, there have been wars and battles fought. Leaders all over the world in all of those battles and wars. In every one of those battles, certain people... Certain leaders have have risen to fame and are remembered in history because of things that they've done, Uh, maybe the leadership they possessed, maybe their fighting spirit is remembered, maybe the sacrifice they made is what we remember. And one of those figures through history is an American soldier, and he's now Lieutenant General Hal Moore. Hal Moore is... Uh, is considered to be one of the top battlefield commanders in world history. World history, you guys. From, from the earliest records of any war, of any battle, till today, Hal Moore is remembered as one of the top commanders of the world. And he established that in 1965. He led a vastly outnumbered uh, group of soldiers and won. They prevailed in what would be the first major battle of the Vietnam War. And part of that story uh, is recorded in a book called We Were Soldiers Once and Young. It was made into a movie, We Were Soldiers. Mel Gibson played the part of Hal Moore. And Hal Moore laid out 17 precepts of leadership, they're called. And I, I read all 17 of them this week while I was researching, and, and, and I actually I would thought they were so great, I posted them to my Facebook page. And so if you want to hear all 17, that's where they are. But here's a couple of my favorites that really pertain to what is going on in Nehemiah. And the first one is spend time with the team, learning who they are and what motivates them. Create a family. I'm not talking to just church leaders today. I'm not talking to just corporate leaders today. I'm talking about leaders of households, husbands, leaders of children, wives, teachers, Students, leaders of other students, talking to every one of us because we all lead someone. Even if you're not aware of it, someone is following you. Someone is looking to you for their example. And I've said it about the family of God before. We are better together than we are apart. We're stronger together. But leaders must know the ones they lead. Leaders are in in any in any corporate setting and in church, whatever your role as a leader is, you are like a shepherd. You are a shepherd. And what do I mean by that? Shepherds know their sheep. They spend time with their sheep. They're in the field with the sheep constantly. They are putting their hands on the sheep. They are intimately acquainted with their sheep. They're they're checking them for sores, for cuts, for parasites, broken bones, bruises, making sure they're healthy. They talk to their sheep. They even sing to their sheep. And there's a reason for it. It's not just because they're so happy to be in the field with the sheep. The sheep learn the shepherd's voice. And they come to that voice. They come to it because they know that wherever that voice is coming from is a safe place. Wherever that voice is coming from is comfort and food and healing. They get it. And guys, you are all, we are all, Shepherds in one way or another. So get to know the sheep that God has given you to care for. Another of General Moore's precepts says, A leader must be visible and exhibit confidence under any set of circumstances. The determination to prevail must be felt by all. The determination to prevail must be felt by all. That's huge, I think. It's been said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood and divide the work and give orders instead teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea now that's all great and poetic but what it means is leaders share their vision they share the vision with the people that they are leading you see people don't follow other people nearly as well as they follow ideas Does that make sense See, I can't wait for the day, and it's coming. It's coming. I can't wait for the day when this room and this building are filled to overflowing every day of the week with people who cannot wait to meet with God, who can't wait to learn more and understand more about this God and this love of this God that has saturated their lives. To see people who are spiritually broken and hurt and bleeding coming through the doors. Why? Because you guys who are here today, because you were out there and you told them that this place on the corner of 131st and Allisonville, easy for me to say. This place, Prairie New Christian Church, is a place that they could come and find healing. That this place is a place they could come to find mercy. That this place is a place where they can come and be welcomed and become part of a community that is totally sold out to Jesus Christ and totally sold out to the idea of let us rise and build. Let us build this kingdom. Let us build this wall of believers and stand against everything that might be against us. We are stronger together. Leaders share their vision because as much as sheep need a shepherd, a shepherd needs sheep. We cannot do it alone. Pastor Ben cannot build this church alone. Craig Hunter cannot build this church alone. I cannot build this church alone. Terry Blaker cannot build this church alone. You cannot build this church alone. You need each other. We need each other. Nehemiah got that. Nehemiah was a leader with dirty, calloused, beat up hands and he understood his people and he related to his people and he worked right alongside his people. He was a leader that identified with his people. His heart was for those people and constantly he was working for the good of those people. And listen, listen, here's the important part. He did all that visibly. Leaders are visible. They knew it. His people, his sheep knew his voice. He, they knew that Nehemiah was their guy. He, they knew that he was for them and he was with them and they could believe in him. And, and, and they knew that he didn't base his decisions and his strategies on some third-party progress report. He didn't, he didn't do reviews of his people because he knew his people. He was right there with them in the trenches the whole time. He was a guy who got out of the office and got his hands dirty. He did not sit in some ivory tower and hand out orders to be delivered and carried out by other people to other people that he didn't know anything about. And guys, be honest. Those are the leaders that we want. Those are the leaders we want to follow. Those are the leaders we can't wait to come to power. Because those are the ones who lead in such a way that not to follow... Seems foolish. And verse 14 says, Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. The last six verses of chapter 5 just sort of give us a more insight into the character of Nehemiah as a leader. So the governors of cities were uh, allowed. They had an allotment or an allowance that was given to them, a certain ration of money and food and wine and things. And Nehemiah just points out to us that he never took advantage of that entitlement. Uh, Even though he was within his rights to do it, he never did. Instead, we see him uh, paying out of his own pocket to feed well over 150 people breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. How many governors and politicians do you see following that example? Not a lot. But don't don't get down on those guys. Because here's the thing. The fact that there's not a lot of people doing that makes those who do really stand out, doesn't it? It makes them leaders that are obvious, that are visible, that shine. And so, where does this, where does this uh, leave us? I've been talking for way too long. Where does this leave us? You know, because the, that, that wedge of division, Satan still uses that to drive believers apart. It's still happening. And when it does, the world is still outside peeking through the windows of the church, waiting to, waiting to watch it happen, waiting to watch us fall and say, I told you, I knew it. The nobles still exist in one form or another. There are still people who use the misfortune of other people to exploit and and to better their own position. And there are leaders like the governors who came before Nehemiah. There are there are leaders who have an allowance that they're taking advantage of, the entitlements and the allowances that we give them. So where does this leave us? It leaves us exactly where we've always been, guys. Leaves us exactly where we've been since the beginning. since It leaves us right where we found Nehemiah, way back in chapter 1. And that is in the good hand of God. It leaves us praying to the same God that Nehemiah prayed to, for strength and wisdom and courage and all those good things. Chapter 2, let me take you through it real fast, just a couple of chapters. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And they said, let us rise up and build. Chapter 4, verse 4, hear, O God, for we are despised. Chapter 4, verse 9, so we prayed to our God and set a guard. Chapter 4, verse 14, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. I could go on, but you get the point. See, the good hand of God was on Nehemiah. And the good hand of God was on Jesus Christ as he walked through the very same life and troubles and trials and consequences and and sufferings that all of humanity endured and still endures to this day. The good hand of God is upon you and it's upon me. And even though we struggle and we have tough times, we have life, we have hardships, God's love for us is steadfast. The good hand of God does not waver. It does not flinch, and it does not let go of us. God's love and God's word are where we as leaders draw our strength from. It's where we draw our confidence from. Not my strength, but the source of all strength. Not my wisdom, but the source of wisdom. Not even, guys, not even my love, but rather the God who is love. See, Nehemiah stayed close to God because he knew ultimately it was God who would fight his battles for him. He solved conflict through calm communication and then action, wise action. He knew his people and he invested in those people and he expected nothing in return. And isn't that exactly how Jesus served the world? He led from the battlefield, not from the air. His feet were on, his boots were on the ground. Jesus' hands were dirty and messy and bloody. Jesus had no concern for his own comfort. But instead, he he humbled himself before his very own creation. And you are all leaders in one way or another. And so, may our leadership be like that of Nehemiah. Like that of General Hal Moore. Like that of Jesus Christ. A leader who would lead in such a way that not to follow would seem foolish. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for each and every leader that is represented here today. I thank you, Lord, that you are with us, that the good hand of God is upon us, and that, Lord, you will not let us down. You will not leave us or forsake us. God, you will not let us fall And so, Lord, we just give you this time now of worship. And and it is our prayer, God, that you would just go with us today. As we leave here, may we do so stronger than when we got here, having more wisdom than when we got here, seeking you more earnestly than when we got here. Bless us, Father. Watch over us. Keep us safe and in your love we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to stand with me for this last song. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We praise you.